Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-383. Now, first, let me apologize for not being consistent with the episode production, with not being consistent with being here for you over these last seven months. I was in a role that was very taxing on my time and energy, a bit of a meat grinder, To illustrate, I'll give you my basic schedule for the last seven months, which was roll out of bed at 4.30 or 5 a.m., grab my stuff, drive to the train station, get on a train, go downtown, get in the gym, get dressed, hit my workouts, get cleaned up, into work, and then work until about 7 at night, get back on the train, getting home sometime after 8, eat something, go to bed, rinse and repeat. In all of this, I had no real office or place to write or record or interview, and this left me with the weekends, basically, and which after spending all week in that meat grinder of work, I kind of needed the time off to recharge enough to get through the next week. But through all this, I kept my training up for the marathon, but just about everything else got kicked to the curb. And I had some some great workouts, some memorable hard workouts down by the Charles River early in the morning. And I learned a lot about the city. But I really missed writing and being able to talk to you folks about endurance sports with the quality and fidelity of a measured mind. So good news for the podcast is that I am done with that gig and for the near future able to focus on getting my mind and body straight for the Boston Marathon. Today, I've got an interview I recorded with one of my old chums, one of my old running buddies, Ted, and we talk about stepping up to a 100-mile distance for a guy like me and what it is going to take. In Section 1, I penned a soliloquy on running my 20th Boston Marathon, and in Section 2, I'll talk about the power of gratitude. Now, since we last talked... I've been in the dark place with my training, lots of hard, hard workouts in lots of bad weather up here in New England, and as of today, we have had four major storms just in the month of March, 
and I've run in all of them and moved all the snow that they've brought. <laughs> and I'll give you a funny or a pitiful, depending on your viewpoint story. Last week, I had a pretty big workout on the calendar for Tuesday. It was an hour and 45 minute fartlek run. So looking at the weather, I could see that it was going to snow all day Tuesday, bringing in high winds and two plus feet of snow. So I sent a note to Coach, and I said, Coach, can we move this workout? And he responded with, you're five weeks out from Boston. This is an important week. And I thought, maybe I could do it on the treadmill at the office. But then the governor declared a state of something and told everyone to stay home and stay out of the city. So I couldn't get to the treadmill. I set my alarm early to see if I could get out before the storm got too bad. But when the alarm went off, I could see the wet snow being driven sideways at the window and hear the, the wind gusts. That wasn't going to happen. So I worked from the home office all day with one eye out the window to see if the storm might not relent. And the snow kept piling up. 5 o'clock p.m. rolled around and I knew it was now or never. I was going to lose daylight. So I strapped on some flashy lights for visibility and I geared up. I pulled out my trail shoes for traction. Now my neighborhood is a cul-de-sac with a one-kilometer loop. And I was not venturing out of the cul-de-sac onto the real roads this day. That would be just crazy. The snow was still coming down pretty hard and about six inches deep on the road. But I had pretty good traction because it had started out as a wet snow. And there was a little bit of wet slush at the bottom that my trail shoes could hook into. So I had pretty good traction. And I warmed up for 10 minutes and then timed out a two to three minute stretch that was slightly uphill and maybe a third to a half of each loop. And each loop I'd accelerate into this stretch and bring my heart rate up, focusing on form and turnover and, and do the work of the fartlek. By this time, the storm was starting to move off and the plows came out and I danced with them on the road and the neighbors came out with their snowblowers and shovels and tractors and I startled more than one of my friendly neighbors by pounding out of the mist, wet, churning, forward, in the mush. And I finished up with over 12 miles, 15 little fartleks, probably 20 laps of my neighborhood, and I'm sure much to the amusement of my neighbors. That was a hard workout. And then I changed into my snow-moving gear and moved snow for another three hours. <laughs> so that's life. When life gives you blizzards, give back fartlicks and have fun doing it. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Twenty years of the Boston Marathon. I honestly don't know how I got here. Each training season rolled into the next, each busy day bolstered by our workout, the past 20 seasons of life wrapped around April and Patriot's Day. It all has gone by so quickly, I almost forget the importance. This thing that I will be doing for the 20th time in four weeks, it all seems quite surreal. 
I could tell you a story about how I got here, about a chubby kid with little physical talent. I could blame it on my dad for setting the example back in the 70s. I could blame it on cross-country practices in the fading leaf-covered New England prep school afternoons. I've always been a runner in some form or fashion. It's one of the threads of my life's tapestry. I never dreamed of being a marathoner. I never set a goal to qualify for Boston. I liked the activity of running, but was not comparatively good at the sport. You can be a better runner than 99% of the world and still find yourself fifth on a five-man cross-country team and solidly in the back of the mid-pack at Boston. But it's a simple sport. It's something that grew to fit my lifestyle and my personality. It's a competition every day against myself and my inner demons. It's a challenge that creates the scaffolding on which to hang a life well lived. Each run in the New England woods or rolling roads is an adventure into undiscovered country. All you need is a door. You walk through that door and you run. You run until it feels worthy. You run into your own thoughts until your brain is bubbling in a cauldron of happy chemicals. Sometimes you drop into that perfect transcendental state we call the runner's high. The world's problems fade away and you are in sync with the breathing and the footfalls. It's a simple sport. I came to the marathon later in life. I ran my first official Boston Marathon in 1998 at the age of 35. I qualified at the Bay State Marathon in the fall of 97. And I spent that previous summer running seven days a week, 50, 60 miles a week, with heavy tempo and speed workout sessions twice a week at the track. I ran two long runs in that season in excess of 26 miles. Why? Because deep down in my soul, I knew I could do it. I knew I was a runner. And that's the secret to qualifying for the Boston Marathon. It has little to do with talent. It all hinges on believing you can do it. And once you believe, the rest is details. The rest is work. Pure, unadulterated, honest work. And we love the work. That first training cycle and qualification changed my world view. It taught me that I am capable of so much more than I think, as it does to thousands each year, thousands of epiphanies of worth popping around the world as they crash through the finish line of that qualifying race and gasp for breath in the sheer joy of exhaustion. The Boston Marathon has brought so much bounty into my life. People mistakenly see what we do as a sacrifice. It is not. It is an investment in a life and a community. It is a celebration of the good animal that we all should be. The work is something aesthetic and meaningful for those of us who train to qualify. The work is purifying, especially in the deep, cold, dark of a New England winter. To commit And do the work is a holy act that purifies one's soul and sets one on fire. 
the boring and normal rat race life is a pale reflection when compared to the work. It's that benediction of the holy work that blesses us with a spot in the corrals in Hopkinton. We stand there shoulder to shoulder as one, a breed of men and women burned and shaped by the fire of our work, unified by the work. This is one of those few meritocracies for the common athlete in our world, a communion not of achievement and medals, but of worthy work. The people I've come to know are another thing that casts shadows of memory on the walls of these 20 years. Each training cycle shared with someone new or someone old or someone unique. The work is much easier if you have friends or acquaintances to come with you. All and sundry questions of the ages have been answered on philosophic long runs. I have been blessed with soulmates from across the globe in these years for shared work and shared experience. People from all walks of life and all abilities, and I'm a better human for it. The relationships built around the work are strong and deep. The work is a bond strong in shared suffering, shared achievements, and shared goals. There becomes a deep affinity and attachment, dare I say, a form of fraternal love that we hold for our trusted training partners. I have been given, accrued, and have been blessed with so much opportunity through this race and the work. So many things I have seen that I wouldn't otherwise have never seen. So many places I have explored that I would not have been able to experience in these ways if not for the work and the community of it. From the giant machine that is New York to the everyman-fueled parades of Marine Corps in Chicago, it's all part of the ride you get to take when you buy this ticket by doing the work. I never set out with the intention to run 20 Boston Marathons. I was going to stop at two, but then the year 2000 seemed like a nice round number. I was going to stop at five, but then I got injured and had something to prove. I was going to stop at 10, but I moved up at age group and qualifying was easier for a while. So maybe I'll stop at 20, but I've already got a number for 21. I've run through the hot years, the rain years, and the catastrophic event year. I have run well at times but mostly have fought the course with mixed results. I have trudged through that last 10K with legs wobbly more than once, wishing it could just be over. The death march more times than I'd like to admit. I've always trained well for the Boston Marathon. I've always done the work in those cold winter months to respect the race. There's a certain pride that drives us in a positive way to do the work. This race for us is a holy place, filled with the ghosts of our ancestors. They are watching. You don't show up at Boston to run easy and have fun. You show up to race. That's what the ghosts and our pride require from us. And I've high-fived a thousand kids and refused the smacking lips of a few hundred co-eds. I've beaten a few dozen well-known celebrities 
I know the course like the back of my own hand. I know where that course turns on the runner, like a hidden beast, and brings them to their knees. I know the turns and the dips and the hills. Oh, those devilish, glorious hills. In a sense, I'm spoiled. I grew up with the race. I knew it before it became internationally famous, before it was on every Tom, Dick, and Mary's bucket list, before it was the Boston Marathon. Here in Massachusetts, you ran the marathon because there was only one that mattered. And now I'm looking down the road to my 20th trip into the Peru from Hopkinton. I'm in decent shape. I've lost a good minute or so of my pace to the years, but I still do the work. I still get excited to go to the expo and see the haunted and gaunt faces of my tribe. How do I feel to be running my 20th Boston Marathon? I am grateful. I am grateful to have been given just enough physical gift to qualify for this race. I am grateful to have met so many interesting and driven humans. I am grateful for all the true and deep friendships I have made and all the miles that we have run together. And I am ultimately grateful to have had the privilege of this race in my life. I don't lose sleep race weekend like I used to. I sleep fine. The race holds few unknowns for me, but always manages to teach me something. Something about the world and something about myself. I'm grateful to have run in the footsteps of the greatest in our sport. I'm grateful to be able to push my small boat into the stream of runners at the top of the hill in Hopkinton. To free fall like a spring freshet in the White Mountains down the streets to Framingham and then to get out and push through the hills to the final manic chase down Boylston. Boston is a part of me, and I'm grateful for that. Welcome to my city. Welcome to my race. Welcome to meet my people and be welcomed by my tribe. Congratulations on doing the work. Let's make the ghost proud. Let's go out and race like we earned it. And now for today's featured interview. So anyhow, you and I chewed some dirt together, so to speak, We have in uh, the marathon world. You're a marathoner, pretty fast runner, yeah. Ironman triathlete, and you tell me you've done some ultras, too. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I sort of took that path of uh, road marathons, then got into triathlons and Ironmans, and about four or five years ago, started hitting the trails and figured I could do more damage the longer uh, distance I've gone. And so I've done about 10 ultras right now and ranging from 50K to uh, a couple hundred miles. Well, yeah. So I remember and, you were in that Vermont 50 with me, but you DNF'd back, what was that, about 10 years yeah, ago now? I know. But I got that monkey off my back. I went back, geez, must have been four years ago, and uh, felt like I nailed it there. So got that monkey off my back and then decided, well, I better see what this 100-mile thing is all about. So this past summer, I did the Vermont 100. And then a month ago, I did the uh, Rocky Raccoon in Texas. 
All right. So you're the perfect analog for me, except you're way faster than me. And I know you have a high pain tolerance because I remember that one race we ran where you ran the end of your femur off and still, I think you still placed in the race. Remember that? <laughs> well, sometimes that threshold uh, is not a asset. <laughs> Maybe in like... Didn't you break the top off your femur and finish the race? Don't I remember that correctly? Yeah, yeah. I got a little little fracture there, but I've had a few of those types of things where where I've gutted something out and then, then I can't run forever and don't think I'm ever going to run again. So that pain threshold is not necessarily a good thing. you got to manage it. Yeah, so like I said, you and I have run a lot of miles together. So you know me. You know how I run. What do you think for me, 100? You know, one of the, one of the top five things i got to think about. Well, I think that I'm not going to sure if I'm going to get to five. Maybe I'll go over. Let me see here. I think, and you've been around the running world a long time. I find the further the distance, the more organized you need to be, the more you have to think ahead about what might not go well. If you're in a marathon, there might be two or three things you key in on that might not go well. But for a hundred miler, there's all sorts of things from blisters to stomach problems to mental stress to all the things that you have ever experienced since the first day you ran, all the things that have gone wrong could go wrong in a 100-miler. And so being both prepared in a way of having, what are you going to do? I always ask myself in training, this is happening, but what are you going to do about it? You're going to slow down so you get your stomach in order? Do you feel a hot spot? Well, you better take care of that right away because it's not going to get better. And I think uh, so that preparedness, if if you're entering a race where you have the option of Having a drop bag, which every 100 mile that I know of has that option, or you might have a crew, what are you going to have out there for yourself? You don't want to bring everything you own, but you do want to think about what are those things that you can't do without. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's actually tough for me because although I tend to prepare very well in the training aspect, like I typically won't go into a race under trained. But yep. I tend to just show up and race. I won't even look at a course anymore before I run it. I'll just go out and run it. Yep. Well, I think you, to a certain extent, you can get away with some of that. You don't need to know every hill and where it is. I mean, some of that's nice to know. But in my mind, I would think about, well, when is the next time in terms of minutes or hours are you going to get to the next aid station? Or are you going to get to a drop bag, or are you going to get to where you know someone's going to be watching you or crewing you? Because that, in my mind, is much more important than yeah. So, so you're kind of running studying, aid station. Studying the you're you're running sort of aid station to aid station, right? You are, and for the first 25 plus miles, that's going to seem like no big deal because you're going to be pretty darn comfortable. But then strange things can happen, and definitely need to be ready for that feeling. Like you're going to hear that voice in your head that says, you know what, I can name 10 things right now why you should just pack it in and do this another day. Unless one of those things is, I am definitely injuring myself, and it's going to take, like I may not recover, like some major injury, then you need to squelch that voice, and you need to be prepared to squelch that voice. Because if you don't go into it with the attitude of, hey, you know what, I'm going to do what it takes to cross that finish line. I don't care how long it takes, but I'm going to do it. You have to go into it with that attitude. Otherwise, that voice that you don't want to hear gets really loud, and it takes a lot more energy to squelch it. 
So I get that voice on uh, on training runs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know what? That's good. I do, too. Even some runs that aren't that long, I'll be like, Ugh. But I have packed in plenty of training runs where I'm like, wow, I got some cramp going on, and I bet some niggle that I'm like, okay, I'm going to shut that down because, you know what, I can do this workout tomorrow if I take care of whatever is going on today and not injure myself. I'm not always that smart, but I'm, I like to kid myself to think I'm getting smarter in my age. Well, is that an advantage being yeah. older? to do these sort of things? Oh, I think so. Although there's plenty of young people that do well in these races. And you know what, Chris, it doesn't even need to be running experience. If you have experienced anything in your life, you've had to work through something that has been emotionally draining. And being in a running race where you, you're bonking and you're hitting a wall, well, that's a real asset. And you've done that, I've done that, and you make mistakes, you don't do the nutrition right, or you have to work through something. Every time that happens, whether it's in running or in life, that is an asset. And some people, I think, are gifted and born with with being able to do that. For me, it takes experience, and I've found that the longer a race is, the more that sort of experience and mental toughness comes into play. Yeah, because the the terrible things that happen tend to lose their acuity after the thousandth time you've been through it, right? Yes. And the other big lesson there is once you've been down and gotten back up, you have that general sense that no matter how bad it gets, it's going to get better. And that's something that is really important, I think, in these ultras is no one that I know of, and I run with some not, don't don't keep up with them, but I've crossed paths with plenty of elites and people that have won some major ultras, and they go through the same hardships. And just knowing that you have to say to yourself, okay, I'm going to do this. It's going to take me a whole bunch of hours, and I'm going to hit some lows. When I hit those lows, I'm going to know that there's no place other than go but up and know that it's going to pass. And that's such a huge part, I think, of ultra running. So, I mean, when we used to run together, you were a sub-three marathoner, right? How do you approach these things in terms of pacing? You're not even going out an eight-minute mile, right? I mean, you got to really pace yourself. Yeah, you're right. And uh, I am going to try to break three again in Boston this year. So we'll see if I can keep these old legs rolling. We'll see what happens. But while we're talking, Ted, you, you can swing by the room. Oh, awesome. I, I might take just take you up on that. Yep. You have to send me the cool. uh, the secret code. Yep. So. Pacing an ultra, don't look at your watch. <laughs> That's going to sound weird. You have to think in comfort zone. If you're not comfortable, then you're going to have some miserable times ahead of you during that race. So there's a little saying of if you're in ultra and you go out, think to yourself, geez, I might be going too slow right now. Slow down. In other words, yeah. there's no way to go out too fast. <laughs> there's no one I know. I got 10 of these under my belt. That's something. But, I mean, some people have 100 of these. But I will say 10 for 10, when I reach the late stages of this race, I have not once said to myself, gee, I wish you'd gone out faster because you would have a better finishing time. No, it's a matter of just you've got to stay comfortable. And if you feel that effort level going up, then just back off. And don't worry, especially early on, what everyone else is doing. Yeah. How much time do you take in the aid stations when you do it? Like, I know some people who, like, camp out in the aid stations, and that always kind of made me crazy. I just want to get in and get out. 
Yeah, I think that is one of the most common errors that people make is spending too much time in the aid stations. They're not rest stations, they're aid stations. So I try to get in and out. I figure the more time I can spend moving, the better I'm going to be. So I will make sure that I grab everything I need and then I will walk out. And I get a little crazy about it. I mean, um, my wife, Pamela, has crewed me in the 100-mile races I've done. And she's like, you're like possessed. You come into that aid station. I'm like, well, you know what? It's not that I want to break some record of getting in and out of there. I don't feel like stopping. And I know if I stop, I'm going to stiffen up. Now, in the race I did a month ago, Rocky Raccoon, it poured rain halfway through. I needed to change my socks. They were just really, my feet were getting uh, torn up a bit. So I got my socks off, added some lube to my feet, put some dry socks on, and off I went. And that's the longest pit stop I've taken. But I don't recommend camping out and falling asleep unless you feel like there's no other way I can finish unless I take a nap right now. And I haven't had that feeling. Yeah, I mean, you're out there for over 24 hours. At least I will be. And that's a long time to be on your feet. I don't care what pace you're going. Well, that's a good point. And I think a lot of the training I do is just being on my feet. I walk the dog a lot. I train a lot. I have a stand-up desk. I'm like, I try to be on my feet as much as I can. And I think that's important. The other thing, Chris, that we haven't touched upon is um, nutrition. And it's taken me a long time to figure that one out. And it's hugely important. You have some special sort of restrictions anyhow, right? Because you got um, Crohn's, right? I got uh, ulcerative colitis, so the cousin of Crohn's. In 2001, after a battle with it, I had my entire colon removed. So I've got this incredibly compromised plumbing system, and I like to think of myself as having the most delicate stomach there is. And so I have uh, really struggled with that. And when you're in a race that long, you've got to be taking in calories from the beginning. And, you know, your body can only absorb 200 to 300 calories an hour. You're going to be expending more than that, but you have a a nice store naturally inside of you with fat and other things that will keep you going, even if you can only take in those 200 to 300. And so I always say practice in your training, taking in that many calories. And you might think to yourself, well, I'm only going out for an hour run. I don't need anything. I can just go out there and I can do my hour run or my two-hour run and get by with a little water or whatever. But no, you, you've got to practice. You've got to train your stomach to take in those calories because what will happen in an ultra is people will get out there and they'll start going, well, I'm going to, I've got my plan. I'm going to take this many goos and this many gels and I'm going to drink this and I'm going to get to the aid station. I'm going to eat potatoes and pretzels and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and they go off. And they hit the first aid station and they think, oh, I don't feel so bad. And they hit the second one. I'm like doing okay. And then they hit the third one and they start taking in this stuff that they haven't trained with. And the stomach's like, fuck you. Oh, should I say that on your on your podcast? Sorry, Chris. But it, it just rejects it. And your stomach will shut down also if you're going too hard because I found if I get too hot, it does that too. Yeah, I'm a big believer if you're racing in hot weather. Pour water over your head whenever you can. A lot of these races now are cupless races, so there's some cool products out there, these little collapsible cups. Make sure you take them with you. Pour water. I sometimes will grab a cup of ice 
at an aid station and put it in my hat and just have that melt over me. But dial in that nutrition, experiment in your training. What I did when I trained for that 50 we did is I basically set my watch for 20 minutes and every 20 minutes I'd stop and eat something, yep. like in my long run, just to make sure I could, like you're saying, digest the stuff, right? Yeah, I think, you know, I'll even do that in the Boston Marathon. I'll make sure I'll carry something and I'll, I'll make sure that I, that 20 minutes I think is a good benchmark. And the other thing, a friend of mine and a lead here in Flagstaff, Rob Carr, has taught me is if you see someone else drinking or eating, then cue yourself in saying, hey, have I hit my mark in the last time? Am I drinking enough? Am I eating enough? So keep that kind of mental aspect in mind because there'll be a lot of other people out there. You can have them prompt you, so to speak. I can't eat too many gels without nodding, not wanting to eat another gel or a block. Right. Uh, so I've transitioned to um, tailwind nutrition, which packs everything into the drink. So I don't actually need to to eat much. You know what? I need to eat something. I'm tired of just drinking and I might peruse the aid station at the Vermont 100. I was uh, grooving on peanut butter and jellies at, at um, yep. Rocky Raccoon. It was uh, the ramen noodle soup. It was cold and rainy and oh, yeah. I was like, oh, yep. I'm grooving on that. So you don't want to go crazy on stuff that you don't train with, but I like going into an aid station going, hmm, this is a cafeteria here. What, my body telling me something? Um, and uh, yeah. so I like the thing. I like pretty- the t- Tailwind. Yeah, I've, um, I've never really had a problem. I've never gotten sick at a race. I mean, at the end of a hot marathon, when I stop running, I feel sick. But I've never had a problem in race, and I can eat almost anything. That's a good thing. And at the same time, I've said this to my kids when they've been in competition, often what's going to kill your opponent um, is being overconfident. So, Chris, I'm willing to bet you feel sick during this 100-miler at some point. Point in time, even though that's yeah. not the norm for you. <laughs> I think you're going there. Just be ready for it. Some people run with bladders. Some people run with handhelds. I've done both. And for these 100-mile races, I like having a water bottle carrier so that you can go in and out of aid stations, fill up, and move on. Me out there, I like a lot called Orange Mud. And they have these things where you can actually put a full water bottle right on your back and grab it easily. And, and I like that for the ultras because I can get in and out of an aid station with a full bottle of whatever it is that I'm looking for. You don't use a Camelback or a vest? For some of my training runs, I use a bladder, and I like that because I can put maybe two or three bottles worth on my back. And so I do a lot of training that way. But for these races where I don't want to deal with filling a bladder necessarily at an aid station because sometimes it's pretty crazy there. So sometimes people struggle with bladders because it takes a while to fill them and it's not as though you may be saying, I don't really care if it takes me 26 or 27 hours or whatever it might be. That's not the point. The point is, is the less time you can spend just standing, the better off you'll be overall. And if you just keep moving. So my whole mantra in an aid station is get in and get out. And that Orange Mud company makes something called the Hydra Quiver, which is you can have sort of the vest thing. So you have pockets in the front, but you also have a full water bottle that you can just pull off your back and, and fill up. And um, I like the sound of that because it's weighted well to your center of gravity, too. Yeah, I think so. It doesn't bounce around as you might think it does. It's not on your hip. It's If you can scratch the back of your head, you can grab the water bottle in this pack. Yeah. So um, what's it like to run through the night? Well, that's, that's interesting. I do think it's good to practice some nighttime runs or early morning runs with a headlamp, and I know you've done that. So the 200 miles I've done, both times, by the time it's gotten 
dark, mile 80 or so, and, and that's going to vary for everyone. I find it really peaceful. I find it does kind of warp your sense of time a bit. And um, in the race I did a, a month ago, it was uh, dark and raining, and I started kind of losing a little sense of where I was and, and how long it was taking me to get to where I was, and I was convinced that I had uh, at least three miles to go. And then I came around the corner and there was the finish line. It was like the best scene I'd ever seen. And that was a nice surprise. But one thing that we haven't talked about is uh, pacers. Yeah. Um, a lot of races allow you to have a pacer late in the race or the last third of a race or last quarter of a race. And um, so I've done one with a pacer and I've done one without a pacer. The race I did a month ago was the USATF 100-mile championships and you're not a lot of pacer. You can have sort of a safety person out there, but I just did it solo. And that was tough because without a pacer, you've got to make sure you don't take a wrong turn. And yeah. there's not someone there to re remind you to eat, to remind you to drink. Just when you have a pacer, all you have to do is relax and run. You don't really need to, to focus as hard. I had a pacer in the Vermont 100, and the, the race uh, partnered me with this young woman who was fantastic. The funny story there was two days before the race, she emails me and she says, well, Ted, I got good news and I got bad news. The good news is, is I'm still going to pace you. The bad news is I just found out I'm pregnant and I'm not going to pace you for <laughs> as long. <laughs> but she got, a good, she got a good 20 miles in before the morning sickness hit her. So she, she helped me out a lot. And I, I really do appreciate that. And I think I would recommend Pacer if you can find one, even if it's a volunteer. Yeah, well, I mean, I have enough friends. I should be able to talk somebody into it. So, uh, yeah, i got to move you toward the exit here. I've, I've used too much of your time. We'll have to uh, talk some more about this. But uh, so anything you want to uh, leave me with? Any last thoughts? I have absolutely no doubt that you're going to uh, finish this thing. And um, I encourage you to agree with me there. And um, I think the last thing I would say is if you know there's anyone going to be watching you, whether it's a, a crew or just someone who's cheering you on, make sure they don't ask you, are you sure you want to continue? Maybe you should <laughs> think about dropping out. You have to coach them and say to them, look, what I want you to say, if I say I'm thinking this might not happen and I might not finish. What I want you to say is, well, that is not an option. So you need to get your ass back out there and we'll see you at the finish line. And so make it happen. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how it goes for you. All right. All right, man. It was great catching up. We'll have to yeah, uh, well, maybe sometime. Yeah. I will um, make an effort to see you when I'm in Boston in April. All right. Thanks, man. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Using gratitude to make yourself a better person. Leveraging a simple emotion for powerful results. I'm reading a very good book. It's called Emotional Success, The Power of Gratitude, Compassion, and Pride by David DeStefano. DeStefano? local guy. I have just finished the first section on the power of gratitude, and this really resonated with me. I have lived through my share of stressful situations and self-improvement pogroms, and I wish I knew this science earlier. What he talks about 
how studies show the correlative and maybe causative impact of fostering an attitude of gratitude would have been a big help to the 20 or 30-year-old me, but I probably wouldn't have listened. As a baby boomer, I grew up with the hard work and self-control mantra. Discipline and good habits could turn any situation around. I focused on being prepared, working harder, and beating myself up for failing at it. Sound familiar? Much of the pop science around self-improvement through the 80s and 90s and aughts was focused on how to create habits and essentially trick yourself into doing things that had a positive effect. Get up earlier, do 100 push-ups a day, envision your perfect future, visualize success. A lot of this was how to increase your self-control, how to make it cognitive. And the challenge with all this stuff is that it, it really isn't very successful. The reason that it isn't successful is that you're pushing a rock up a hill. You're fighting the natural bias of your brain to weigh short-term benefit over long-term benefit, long-term success. And the studies show that on average, we will accept $17 today instead of $100 in a year. We're wired to make short-term benefit decisions. Why is that important? Because most of the decisions that determine success are long-term in nature. They require us to pass up on an immediate gratification and wait for a delayed reward. Think about it. I can smoke the cigarette now for the pleasure it gives me, even though I know I'm sacrificing years of my life. I can eat the cake now instead of exercising. I can play this video game instead of studying. Which stinks, because... The studies also show that the people who naturally wait long-term rewards have better self-control and more success. So think of the goal-setters and the visionaries. They focus on the future. This is not a big surprise. Everyone knows or suspects this short-term reward bias. It's built into our culture. The traditional approach to breaking the short-term reward bias is to cultivate more willpower. Move the decision out of the emotional brain and into the cognitive brain where we can think about it and make better long-term decisions. Classic self-improvement speak says willpower is a muscle. You have to use it a lot to make it stronger. And there is some truth to this. Unfortunately, the truth is that what the science shows, yes, willpower is a muscle. It fatigues quickly but does not get stronger with use. That's why, as rational as it is, you can't walk away from that greasy pizza at midnight. You have burned out your willpower through a day of making decisions. The cognitive brain is bad at controlling emotional decisions. Emotions always win out eventually. So why not use emotions to steer the ship instead? Instead of pushing that rock up the hill like some mad Sisyphus battling an unwinnable task, enter the wonderful discovery of gratitude. Turns out gratitude is an excellent tool to change or positively influence our interactions, our willpower, and our health. Gratitude lights up a more fundamental part of our brains— the cognitive brain is bad at making moral decisions, and moral decisions drive behaviors. The more basic parts of our brains are influenced by emotion, and that emotion drives behavior. It resists rationality. 
So through a series of experiments, gratitude was shown to influence our ability to make long-term decisions. To quantify that, David's own experiments showed that those who were induced into a state of being grateful held out to $31 today in exchange for $100 in a year. That's still a pretty steep discount, but twice as good as the baseline $17. People who were grateful also were more willing to perform a difficult task and stayed with those tasks longer. They did a better job, so to speak. Gratitude in the classroom was correlated to better grades, better study habits, and academic success in general. Gratitude also correlates to physical health. The way this was tested was to have people stand up in front of a room and give a presentation. Oh, how many times I've been there. Very stressful situation. And then the researchers measured the participants' stress responses. And those in a state of gratitude were able to perform better with less stress. Long-term gratitude correlates with lower blood pressure, good cholesterol, and all those other things involved in good health. And gratitude helps you sleep better. Gratitude does a body good. And gratitude gives us a sense of abundance. We realize all that we have to be thankful for. And this makes us more willing to share our talents and share our resources. This makes us more willing to give back or to share some of our resources with our future self by delaying today's pleasure. So how do we get gratitude? We can cultivate gratitude by simply reflecting on what we are grateful for, counting our blessings. This is simply a practice of writing down the small things that you are grateful for and reviewing them often. This is the manifestation of the gratitude journal. Gratitude can also be given to us from others. When someone does you a small kindness or relieves you from an onerous task, you are grateful. And with this gratitude comes all the benefits discussed above in some measure. So think about that. Your sincere smile to the barista this morning may have actually improved their health and their life. So in summary, my friends, if you're trying to get to a better place in your life, if you want to create a better world, stop focusing on willpower and scarcity. Focus your energy on gratitude and abundance. So what are you grateful for? Gratitude. Abundance. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends. After much patience and fortitude on your part, we have made it to the end of episode 4-383. Congratulations. You've got a lot of spunk for a skinny little endurance athlete. Yeah, you do. And you know what I'm drinking right now? Bullion. Yep. Needed something warm on this cold afternoon as I sit at my desk and write love letters to the ether. Too late for coffee. And to be honest, since my January 30 Days of Clean Eating project, I can't drink more than one cup of coffee a day. Rachel detoxed me from the caffeine habit. I do drink tea, but all we have in the house is a choice between super caffeinated morning teas and god-awful, sickly, sweet, fruity teas that my girls drink. And I swear it's like soaking potpourri in cheap perfume. This stuff's awful. Bullion, 
bullion hits the spot. Lots of nice salt for my sweaty soul. Less than 10 calories. Maybe a pinch of fat in there. Very nice broth. Very sustaining. So we're just about three weeks out from the Boston Marathon now. Yeah. And I'm at the end of a down week. Whew. I don't know what coach has in store for me next week. We have time for one more volume week if he feels I'm up for it. I've struggled with a lot of leg fatigue this cycle, which is not uncommon when you're training for a marathon, uh, especially in the spring. He may just put me into a three-week taper. We'll see. I'm ready. I've done the work. The times I'm running right now in my tempo workout on tired legs, they'd be good enough for a qualifier. So with a decent taper, some reasonable weather, a little luck, I could bring home a good race this year. And as taxing as this past training cycle has been, I've quite enjoyed it in the sense that I'm proud of having done it. I'm grateful every day for having the ability to do it. And when I've been running down by the Charles in the morning, I get to see all the other athletes. And it's not just me out there in the 10-degree weather with the ice and the snow and the wind. There's a pack of us, a tribe, you might say, young and old. And this close to Boston or, or any other spring race, I see a fair number of athletes doing tempo work, speed work. And it wouldn't be obvious to the casual observer, but I see them stealing peaks at their watches and pushing their form. And there's some beautiful athletes out in the morning, lots of unicorn gear, really feel like I'm among my people. And I'm, I'm happy that they let an old guy like me join in their unicorn games. Because it doesn't matter how old you are, how pretty you are, or how good you are. The trail and the morning are both equal opportunity employers. So get out there and get yours. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. I honestly don't know how I got here. Each training session, each training... Wow, start over showed up oh, gusties <coughs> <coughs> to quantify that